0: You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit CreeksideCommunity.org. In uh, 2018, Pastor James McDonald and his megachurch Harvest Bible Chapel in Illinois filed suit against two Christian bloggers and a Christian journalist for reporting that the church was near bankruptcy and McDonald had gambling problems. The church and McDonald filed suit in Cook County Circuit Court. He said they weren't trying to get monetary damages, they were just trying to stop these bloggers and journalists from... Uh, publishing and saying what they're saying. And that brings us to the question of the day. Should Christians sue Christians? In 1 Corinthians 6, the Apostle Paul says, absolutely not. That lawsuits between Christians is a denial of what it means to be a Christian. And he gives two reasons in in chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. First of all, what lawsuits reveal about our values? In verses 1 through 6. And second, what lawsuits reveal about us? In verses 7 through 11. Now, you may never be sued or sue another believer. But this is a great passage in a larger frame in terms of of do we depend upon the culture for the way we conduct our lives, or do we depend on the Word of God for the way we conduct our lives? And are we really Christians, or are we just religious people who refer to ourselves as Christians? So this this passage, there's a lot chalked in here, so let's pray and ask God to please help your pastor. And uh, as we go through this, Father, thank you that you're the vine and we are the branches. Lord Jesus, you said, abide in me and I in you, for apart from you we can do nothing. We pray you'll be our teacher. You'll speak to us, help us to understand these things. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, which we're calling the blessed mess. It's a mess because it's a messed up church. It's blessed because it belongs to God. And 1 Corinthians is a pretty simple outline. The first part of the book deals with problems that Paul had heard about the church was struggling with. And the second part of the book deals with questions that the church has sent to him, and so Paul answers those questions. We're in the problem section right now. We've already looked at two big problems, the problem of division, which is chapters 1 through 4, that the the Corinthians had formed fan clubs around their favorite pastor and were battling each other. And then last week we looked at... uh, the Corinthians were, were guilty of, of tolerating what they shouldn't tolerate. There is a, there's a man in the, the church who is has an incestuous relationship with his, his mother or stepmother, and uh, rather than exercising a healthy church discipline, they just ignore it. And we looked at last week of, of uh, when and how the right way to judge is. This week we're gonna talk about lawsuits, which is another problem they had. Every problem the Corinthians have is because they're more Corinthian than they are Christian. They're more conformed to the Corinthian culture than they are shaped by the Word of God. And Corinth was a particularly litigious society. Lawsuits were the way you silenced, intimidated, and got back at your enemies. Uh, The goal wasn't so much financial, the goal was to totally shame not only your opponent, but their family and their friends. It was total victory. It's like Twitter today, and and these courts were, were incredibly unjust. First of all, by law, you couldn't sue anyone that was above you in class. You could only sue people who were equal to you or below you, so the the courts became an instrument of the rich to to hold power and to punish anyone who resisted them. Um, They were all jury trials, so everybody wanted to be on a jury because you're gonna get bribed, and it was a great way to make a little cash on the the side. Uh, Plus the fact that it was great entertainment. In fact, lawsuits were kind of the national sport of Corinth because hundreds of people would gather for these lawsuits because you get to hear all the dirt on everybody else. You know, it was kind of like an ongoing soap opera. And, and some of these uh, lawsuits would get huge crowds. So there were all kinds of reasons that a Christian shouldn't take another Christian to a Corinthian court. Except that's not the reason Paul gives. And the first reason Paul gives that the Corinthians should not sue each other is because they are valuing the wisdom of the world more than the wisdom of God. They're looking to the kingdom of darkness to solve their problems rather than looking to the kingdom of light. Now Paul asks seven questions, and he's, he's a great arguer, as you know, and let's, let's work through these seven questions together. Question number one, does any of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? We don't know why the Christians were suing each other. Uh, Maybe somebody built his fence on the other side of the property line. Maybe the cow he sold you doesn't give milk. Maybe he insulted you because you were part of Peter's fan club and he was part of... We don't know why but paul's objection here is that you are going before the unrighteous rather than taking it to the saints Now when the Bible talks about saints, you need to understand it's not talking about special Christians Saints is the word that the Bible uses for all Christians so you're a saint today so if you want to put that on your uh, on your business card, I am Saint John and uh, People think you're crazy, but you will be biblical. And that's the important thing there. So Paul says, how can you dare to sue each other in secular court? Question number two, are do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Now, what's he mean by that? Well, he's referring to something Jesus said in, in uh, I hope we have this here. Do we have... The next verse. What's the next? Yeah. In Matthew 19, 27 through 28. This is the st- story of where the, the young man comes to Jesus and says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, keep the law. And he says, I have. And Jesus says, okay, one thing you lack, sell everything you got. Come and follow me. The man goes away sorrowful. And, and Jesus says to his disciples, how hard it is for rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then Peter asks a question. He says, behold, we left everything and followed you, what then will there be for us? We did what he was unwilling to do. How's that going to work out for us? And Jesus says something very interesting. He says, truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So Jesus is talking about when he returns, the new heaven and the new earth, He says those who have followed and suffered with him now in this life will reign and judge in the next. Now, the Bible doesn't give us a whole lot of detail about that, but just to know that if you're a follower of Christ, you will have some kind of responsibility for ruling in the new heavens and the earth. And So the idea is you're going to be a judge. You're going to have to make some some decisions, so you better learn how to make them now. In Revelation 20, verse 4, John writes, I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image or received the mark on his forehead or on their hand, they came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. That's the idea. Suffer with me now. Follow me now. Be humiliated with me now because you're one of my followers, and when I reign, you will reign. And so Paul's argument is, here's your future. You're going to be reigning. Better learn how to do a little bit of it now. Let's go to the third question. If the world is to be judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? If you're going to be judging all this in the future, can't you decide in these little disputes between your brothers and sisters? Question number four, do you not know that we will judge angels? Not only do we judge people, we'll judge angels. I don't know what that means. I I suspect it means fallen angels. Um, And as we know from Daniel and, and other parts of the Old Testament, fallen angels are behind the governments of this world. And so the idea is here, why do you go to the governments of this world to settle disputes when in fact you're going to be judging the powers over those worlds in the future? So you see that argument he's making here? If this is true, this is true. If this, you're going to be doing all this in the future, why can't you do this little bit now? Question number five, how much more matters of this life? Question number six, so if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, Do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? And that's kind of the key idea here, is that if God is this high calling for his church, why are you turning to the world and asking them to solve your problems when you have the wisdom of God in your midst? Finally, question seven. I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren, but brother goes to uh, law with brother, and that before unbelievers? Do you get Paul's point here? Why shouldn't we go, why shouldn't we sue each other in secular court? Because we are asking people who are not competent to make judgments, which you are competent to make. See, that the Corinthians obviously have a problem with judgment. They can't judge who the man in their in their uh, church who's living with his stepmother. They have a kind of an idea of all things are lawful. We're under grace. You can do anything. It doesn't matter. And Paul is talking about, as Jeff said last week, the right kind of judgment. The Bible says, judge not that you may not be judged, but it goes on and says why? Because by your standard of judgment you will be judged, by your standard of measure be measured to you. The issue is not to not judge, the issue is not condemn people for things you're guilty of. That's the idea. But you cannot live without making judgments. Isn't that true? You gotta judge what is right and wrong for you. You gotta judge what is right and wrong for your kids. You gotta judge what is right and wrong for your family. Not to condemn people, but to help people. You know what the word promiscuous means? It means without judgment. You're just indiscriminate. Wise people are people of good judgment. That's what Paul's saying. You need to learn how to judge wisely. So it's a shame, first of all, because you're, you're going to the, to the lost to have them make decisions, and you're airing all your dirty laundry in front of them and saying, we don't have anybody in our church that's competent to settle this thing. Will you settle it? That's the argument there. It's interesting that in the, in the case of James McDonald in the Cook County Circuit Court, the church stepped in and withdrew the case when the judge said the church had to reveal their financial records to show whether or not they were doing what the bloggers and the journalists said and they would rather keep that secret and this kind of alerted the elders that something's going on here. So they began to look at the something they'd never looked at, and they began to see how money was being wasted, how, how the pastor was being vastly overpaid. And eventually, he was fired for sexual harassment, for bullying staff, for all kinds of malfeasance. And it resulted because it started off in a secular court, In the whole church had a black eye. All because... They did not heed this command. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever man sows, he will also reap. It's just another, another idea of that, or another reminder of that. So that's, that's the idea here. Now, how do you do this in real life? The Scripture, Paul doesn't give us how any structures for this happening. He just says one wise person. One white, isn't there one, one person who can settle this between each other? So it may just be one white spirit. For some churches as elders, the elders will step in. People can go to them and say, we've got a, a, a disagreement we can't agree on. There are Christian conciliation services which uh, you can go to, and if both people agree. In fact, some Christians have built into business contracts with other Christians that if we have a disagreement, we will go to this particular service and we will abide by the decision they make. So there's all kinds of ways to apply this. The point is, you're, you're taking your, your disagreements to the church, to godly wise people to settle rather than to the world. The first century Jews never took their disagreements within the Jewish community to secular courts. Because the rabbis taught it would be blasphemous because we have received the law of God and they haven't. And that's kind of the bigger idea here is, is that when we depend upon the world to do for us what we should depend on God and his church to do, we're putting more confidence in the kingdom of darkness, than the kingdom of light. You see, there's this theme that runs throughout the scripture that there are two ways. There is the way of wisdom. There is the way of folly. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and rely not on what? Your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. And so, there's two ways you can live. You can depend on God. You can depend on yourself. And this is, runs throughout the story of the Bible. It begins in the Garden of Eden. God says to Adam and Eve, you can eat of every tree except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for in the day you eat of that you will surely die. The serpent comes and he says to Eve, any trees here you can't eat from? And Eve said only one, that tree over there because God says if we eat of that tree, we'll die. And you remember what the serpent says? Servant says, "You won't die. Just the opposite. Your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God. You won't need God anymore to tell you what's right and wrong. You'll be able to see what's right and wrong for yourself. And that has been the case all through our history. It's the way of folly, depending on yourself, and by extension, depending on your culture and other people, to tell you what's right and wrong." depending on God and upon His Word. It's the narrow way that leads to life, the wide way that leads to destruction. One of the things that has motivated me to study the Bible is because the more I read the Bible, I I found out the Bible is not a religious book. As Psalm 19 says, the Bible is... The word of God is like the sun. Nothing is hidden from its heat. That God speaks to every area of life. He gives us wisdom in every area. And as James says in James 1 that uh, he who abides in the law and does not become a forgetful hearer but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in all he does. I find when I do things God's way, I get blessed. Have you discovered that? You want your finances to be blessed? God tells you how to do it. You want your family to be blessed? God tells you how to do it. You want your city to be blessed? You want your life to be blessed? That's why the Bible is so big. It speaks to so many issues. But we have a choice whether we're going to listen to God or listen to the culture. One leads to life One leads to death. And so if you have, if for you, reading the Bible is just a discipline you can't seem to develop, I just don't have enough self-control, I can't get up early, or whatever it is, stop seeing it as a religious discipline. See it as these are the words of life. As, As David says in Psalm 119, 128, I esteem your precepts in every way. I hate every false way. Truth, error. Life, death. It depends on what our source of information is. And that's Paul's larger point here. You are going to people who don't know the way of life to decide these things among you rather than going to people who know God's wisdom. Does that make sense? Reason number one. Here's reason number two. You shouldn't sue Christians. What it says about you. Actually, then it's already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why? Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? The fact that you're suing each other and defending your, each other in defending yourself in court, you're not doing what Jesus would do. You're not following Jesus' way. Remember what Jesus said about what to do when people hurt you? When people sue you? Remember what he said? You've heard that it's said, an eye for an eye a tooth for a tooth. Give as well as you get. But I say to you, do not resist the evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other one. Whoever wants to sue you and take your shirt, give him your coat. Whoever will force you to go one mile, go with him too. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor but hate your enemy, but I say, love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may show yourself to be sons of your Father in heaven, for he causes his sun to shine on the evil and the good and causes his rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. We are most like Jesus in how we treat those who attack us. And so it's already a defeat for you because you're not following Jesus. You're not treating the people who wrong you like Jesus would. But Paul says it's even worse than that. Here's something else the lawsuits show about you. It not only shows that you're not following Jesus, on the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brother. You're cheating your fellow Christians. That's why there's lawsuits. That's why this is such a mess. And that's a very serious thing to sin against your fellow Christians. Why? Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Paul says the fact that you have lawsuits, the fact that you're defrauding and cheating each other, you're not acting like Christians, or maybe you're not even a Christian at all. That's what he's saying. He says you need to understand that people who practice, and he gives us a long list of sins, people who live this way, they're not Christians. They're not part of the kingdom of God. And this is the way a lot of you used to live. I think all, all of the uh, Corinthians, because of that society, were probably fornicators, and most were adulterers and thieves and, and all these other things. That's the, way, that's the way you used to be, but not you cleaned up your act. Not that you turned from all these things. Not that you became a, an Eagle Scout, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were saved. Jesus came into your life. And even though you still struggle with sin, you've been freed from that habitual practice of these sins. Now, you understand that, right? That when Christ saves us, He doesn't just forgive our sins and give us a get-out-of-jail-free card so that no matter what you do from then on, you're going to go to heaven. No, He comes to save us from our sins. And so he, He changes you inside. He kills the old slave of sin, who you used to be, and creates a brand new person in union with Jesus. So this changes my relationship with sin. Not only am I forgiven, but I'm freed from the rule of sin. Now, that doesn't mean sin doesn't keep asking, telling me to do stuff. We're always tempted, right? But a Christian cannot continue to practice sin without red lights going off and feeling bad about it. Isn't that true? We all sin every day, right? The difference is you can no longer sin unconsciously. It's no longer a habit of life. If Christ is really in your life, you will struggle with it. It'll bother you. It'll make you sad. You'll mourn for it, and you'll turn from it. That's the idea here. And so what Paul is saying is, if you're defrauding, if you're suing each other, all these things, and it doesn't bother you to be that way, you may not be a real Christian at all. You may call yourself a Christian, but if it hasn't changed your relationship with the sin that lives in you, then you're not acting as a Christian. That's so that's the point. What do lawsuits reveal about you? Do they reveal that you're a real follower of Christ, or do they deny that you're a real follower of Christ? The church I worked before this, we had two godly men uh, who were deacons. And uh, at, at, our partic- at this particular church, it was kind of like the, the deacon board. were. Uh, they would kind of be like our elders here. They were, it was the repository of the mature Christians. And one of the guys, great guy, he retired, and he decided that he was going to sell his house, which was a large house, and they would build a new house, smaller house, for him and his wife to retire in. And so he hired one of the other deacons who was a contractor and uh, built a house right off of Crestmont in, in, in the Oakland Hills. Well, I'm not sure exactly how it all happened, but they began to go over budget, over budget, over budget, and and this house ended up costing much, much more than it had originally been promised. And the contracting deacon was unwilling to negotiate with the homeowner. Rather than taking him to court, he said, 1 Corinthians 6, we're not supposed to sue each other in court. So he ended up selling the new house before they even lived in it so that he could pay off all the bills. That and unfortunately, at our church, we had no structure for settling these kinds of cases between Christians. And so eventually, the contractor left the church with his family. And the other deacon had done the right thing, but he didn't, they didn't end up living in the house they wanted to live in. But I always appreciated his conscience and, and the, way, the way he had handled, handled that. Here's the larger issue here. It's easy to go to church. It's easy to pray a prayer. It's easy to say, I'm saved because I've trusted in Jesus. And yet, if I don't see a change in my relationship with sin, Paul says, I have reason to doubt whether Christ is really in my life. This is an issue that John dealt with in 1 John. John was dealing with a lot of people who said they were Christians, but who continued to live the way they'd always lived, conformed to the world. And I want you to look at this smattering of verses. He says, Little children, let no man deceive you. He who does righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. In this, the children of God are manifest in the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Neither is he who does not love his brother." If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. This is how we are sure that we have come to know him, by keeping his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him without keeping his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word truly in him, the love of God is perfected. This is how we know we are in him. The one who says he abides in him should walk just as he walked. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in the darkness, We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. The new birth changes my relationship with sin. What used to be thoughtless habit, I didn't even think about all the ways I sinned. I didn't even see them as sin. All of a sudden, they become distasteful to me. They make me sad. They, it just feels wrong. And I cannot practice them thoughtlessly any longer. I want to do what's right. How do you know if you're really a Christian or you just think you're a Christian? One word, repentance. Repentance. Repentance is going a new direction. Do you Repent. Do you, when you see something God says, this is sin, say, I confess that. I do do that. I don't want to do that. I repent. Now, you may repent every day because we all do. You have to. We sin every day. We have to repent every day. Here's the trap. Satan will say to you, God is all love. God is all merciful. You can repent later. Have your fun now. Do what you want to do now. And then at the end, repent. And the reason that's a lie is because you cannot repent on your own. Repentance is a gift of God. Seeing that you sin, wanting to change, turning from that sin is the grace of God in you. And if you keep on denying that grace, how do you know if you really have it? Because what Satan will say to you at the end is, you can't repent. You've got too much to repent for. There's no hope for you. You See how subtle he is? So I guess my challenge today is, if there are things in your life right now that you know you are tolerating, areas that you know displease God, but you just keep putting it off and hiding from it, repent. Repent, come to God, confess it, walk into the light, say, Lord, you promised not to reject anyone who comes to you. I confess that I think this, I do this, I treat people this way, and you say that's sin. Thank you for Jesus who cleanses me from all sin. Please give me the power to say no every day to this sin. You won't say no every day, but that's, you'll be battling it. It won't be surrender anymore. It won't be tolerance. It won't be avoiding conflict, but every day you will go to war, and that's the evidence that Christ is in you. Does that make sense? Let's, let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, the wisdom of your word that every area of our lives uh, are touched by the Scriptures, and I pray you'll give us as your family the diligence to become workmen who do not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth, applying it to our lives that we might be blessed by You. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.